Church, good to see you this morning. Started our um, Holy Week observance a little bit early this year. Some of you look very dazed and confused as you walked into the room this morning. We moved your cheese a little bit and uh, your routine got disrupted, but uh, hopefully you can shake that off and make the most of it. One way you can do that is if you're seated around people that you're not normally seated around, I encourage you to just get to know them before the morning's out, okay? Introduce yourself and uh, change it up a little bit this morning. Say, why did you do this today? Well, we mainly did this as we're approaching Holy Week to symbolize the fact that the centerpiece of our Christian faith is what? It is the cross of Jesus Christ, the focal point of our Christian faith. So if you're not sure where to look, like in this new setup, just stare at the cross, okay? That's right in front of you. You'll be safe doing that. It is the cross of Jesus that sets Christianity apart from every other major world religion. No other world religion has a deity who came to earth and suffered and died for his people so he could save them. Christianity is unique in that regard, and we celebrate that. So what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago on Golgotha's hill that sets people free from their sin and gives them eternal life. So we do well to fix our eyes and set our gaze on the cross. You know, this week, just I was thinking of some of the old hymns that speak of the cross. Think of these, perhaps. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast Save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not for me he died on Calvary. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Some of us who grew up in church, those songs bring back memories, wonderful memories. But you know what? Without question, the greatest song about the cross of Christ is found in the Bible, in the Word of God, in the book of Isaiah, and chapter 53. So would you go there in your Bible this morning? And you can pull the study guide out of your worship folder as well. I got to tell you, I've been anticipating this weekend for a, a long, long time. One of the guys in my small group recently said to me, Hey, Steve, it seems like it's been a long time since we've been in the Old Testament at New Life. And I said, You're right, but just hold on, it's coming. <laughs> We're going to be studying the life of Joseph in a couple of months from the book of Genesis. It's going to be a fascinating study. And right now, leading up to Holy Week and to Easter, we're going to dive deep into perhaps the most beloved and clearest prophecy in all of the Old Testament about Messiah, Jesus, and particularly his death and resurrection. As I said, Isaiah 53 is a song. 
It's actually the fourth in a series of songs that are often referred to as the servant songs of Isaiah. And they're called servant songs because each of them speak of a person, an individual referred to as the servant of God or the servant of the Lord or the servant of Jehovah, a man sent to earth to serve God's purposes like no one before or since. The New Testament writers believed that that person was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Dozens of times they quote from this book, from Isaiah, and without exception they apply those references to Jesus. Now remember that the book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. And so what we're looking at here is prophecy, right? Biblical prophecy. God revealing to a man what's going to happen in the future in accordance with his plan. And of course, that's a reminder that the God who created all things not only knows the future, but when it comes to his great salvation plan, he determines the future. He decrees what's going to happen. This particular servant song, which actually begins at the end of chapter 52, so the guys who put the chapter and verse stuff in there, they messed it up hundreds of years ago, begins at the end of 52, it's a song that's got five stanzas, each of which are about three verses long. And the stanzas get more weighty and more profound as they progress. We're going to explore the first two of them today. We'll save the remaining three for next weekend. But first I want to give you some background on the book of Isaiah before we kind of dive into this song. You might know that the book of Isaiah divides really neatly into two distinct sections. Chapters 1 through 39 form the first section, and chapters 40 through 66 form the second section. So 39 chapters and 27 chapters. Does that sound faintly familiar? The first section of Isaiah, those first 39 chapters, primarily a pronouncement of the judgment of God. His judgment on the nation of Israel for breaking their covenant with him, his judgment on other nations of the earth who have turned away from God in their wickedness, and a future judgment that's yet to come on all the wickedness of all of mankind. So the first 39 chapters are about judgment. Then there's this shift. And the last 27 chapters are about God's grace and salvation. His grace to Israel in delivering them from their captivity in Babylon. His grace to sinners in providing forgiveness of sins. And his grace poured out in the end times, delivering the nations from the curse of sin and ushering in the kingdom of Messiah. So the first 39 chapters are about judgment, and the last 27 chapters are about grace and salvation. Hmm. Do you see a parallel between the book of Isaiah and the, the Bible as a whole? Many, many scholars have. Some have even referred to Isaiah as the mini-Bible. In fact, the second section of Isaiah, that, that last 27 chapters, begins where the New Testament begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, and it ends where the New Testament ends with the prediction of a new heavens and a new earth. So the parallels between the book of Isaiah and the whole Bible are really striking, and we should marvel at that. Now the question posed in the book of Isaiah is this, who is going to bring the grace and salvation that is spoken of in the second part of Isaiah. And the answer that is given again and again is this, 
The person who's going to bring grace and salvation is the servant of the Lord. Now, some scholars through the years, not wanting to admit the obvious, have contended that the servant spoken of in Isaiah is actually not Jesus, but is the nation of Israel. And it is true that in some parts of Isaiah, the nation of Israel is referred to as the servant of God. Problem is, that does not work here, especially as you get into Isaiah 53. In fact, it's actually Israel's viewpoint that is being represented in these chapters. For example, it says, We esteemed him not. Well, who's the we? Well, it's the nation of Israel. Who's the him? Well, it's this person, this individual, the servant of the Lord. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Whose griefs and sorrows? Well, it's Israel's. So the servant here is not a nation. It's not. It's a person. A stunning, astonishing, startling individual. A man whom Isaiah calls upon us to behold, to see, to gaze upon, to look upon, to ponder, to stare at. The servant of the Lord. Let me read our passage for you this morning. These first two stanzas of this servant song. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. See. Word means behold or gaze upon. My servant, you might want to circle that. See, my servant will act wisely or prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so, no, excuse me, so will he sprinkle or startle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That is a portrait of the servant of Jehovah, the servant of the Lord. This unique individual is introduced in this first stanza to us, and as he is, we can't help but notice people's reactions to him. You see it? They are appalled, they are startled, and they are speechless. God's servant would end up surprising people in, in many, many, many ways. So we're going to look first at the startling servant of Jehovah as he is portrayed here in this first stanza. Notice first the astonishing contrast. You kind of feel it when you read this first stanza. There's a, there's a shift. It says this. Let me read it to you again, 52, 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Well, that sounds positive, right? Encouraging. Then, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. Just reading this as it's written, there's an awkward kind of shift and a jolt. Do you feel that? 
First, there's this prediction that the servant of God is going to be exalted. It says he will act wisely. Some translations read he will prosper. The idea is that the servant of the Lord is going to be successful. He's going to achieve what he came to achieve. And the proof of that is that God is going to exalt him. Three phrases here describe this elevation of the servant of God. And they're not just repeat phrases. I believe they mean something unique, each one, a threefold exaltation of the Messiah. First, it says he will be raised. I believe that refers to the resurrection of Messiah. Then it says he will be lifted up. I believe that refers to his ascension back up into heaven to be with his Father. And then it says he will be highly exalted. And I believe that refers to his coronation as king. So this stanza opens with a stunning portrayal of the servant being so pleasing to God that God exalts him, raises him up above all else, gives him the highest place, but then there's a shift. And, and it's disconcerting. It's like a slideshow advancing to the next slide. The picture of Christ's glory disappears and it's replaced by a grisly scene from Calvary's mountain. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured, his form was marred. Very strange. The juxtaposition of the exaltation of Messiah with the suffering and humiliation of Messiah. I think it was meant to jolt the readers. Because this is what millions of Jewish people down through the centuries would misunderstand about the servant of the Lord. What so many failed to comprehend, although they should have understood this, is that the promised anointed one, the Messiah, the king, would be a suffering king. He would be a king who would come and suffer and die for his people. But they missed that suffering part. They missed it so badly that when God's servant did actually appear on the scene, they looked right past him. They missed their Messiah. But Jesus would suffer, wouldn't he? Oh, would he suffer. The language here implies brutality. It implies torture. He would endure an, a, a mutilation of his body that would be appalling. And that's the second glimpse we're given up of here. The servant of God would experience beatings so vicious that he would appear inhuman. It says that his form would be marred. That means his body. His appearance, his face disfigured beyond that of any man. He, he wouldn't even look human. The Messiah would be exalted, yes. But before his exaltation, he would suffer. His body and face would be so distorted from the pounding that he would take that he would actually look more beastly than human. And again, looking forward from Isaiah's time, we know that this image presented here prefigures the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, right? The New Testament apostles preached often in the book of Acts that Isaiah 53, those predictions of Messiah's suffering were fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. 700 years after Isaiah wrote his prophecy. Next weekend, we're going to look at the spiritual devastation that happened on the cross 
But here it describes the physical devastation, and it is grisly, it is gruesome. Now we know that our Savior, your Lord Jesus, was beaten to a pulp before he was ever stapled to that cross. You know that, right? His body lashed 39 times with a cat of nine tails, a whip with long leather strips with pieces of bone and metal tied into the end of those strips so that when a person was whipped and the whip was pulled back, it would yank pieces of flesh off of the person. He was punched in the face. King James Version says he was buffeted. That word means to throw all of your weight behind a curled fist. And the Roman soldiers, out of scorn and mockery, were punching Jesus in the face again and again and again. He was just bludgeoned to where his face didn't even look human anymore. The crown, made up of huge spike-like thorns, mashed down on his skull, ripping the flesh, scratching the cranium, excruciating pain. It's hard to even imagine, isn't it? If you've never watched the Passion of the Christ movie, you've never watched the crucifixion scene, you need to. Brace yourself, because it won't leave you unfazed, it won't leave you unmoved, but it paints a picture of the physical torture of what our Lord went through. It says here that when people behold the bruised, broken, bleeding servant of Jehovah up on that cross, looking really like a raw piece of meat hanging there, that they will be appalled. That's their reaction. The word means to be so horrified at what you're seeing that you just kind of lose control and go numb. That awful. The sight of this seemingly helpless man, so disfigured, so contorted, so bludgeoned, so mutilated that he doesn't even look human, would produce that kind of a retching reaction if you'd been there. You know, later generations of Jews and Gentiles alike would look back on the eyewitness accounts of what happened on Calvary's mountain that day, and they would say, well, that's not what a king should look like. Pathetic, weak, humiliated, writhing on a tree like a snake on a pole. We want strength in our leader. We want bravado. Give us power and might. We want someone who will crush our opponents, not be crushed by his. They just couldn't bear the thought that this Jesus was their Messiah. He didn't fit the mold. It was a mutilation that was appalling. But then the scene changes again, and Isaiah is given another glimpse of the exaltation of Messiah. There's a fast forward to a time yet to come when that same suffering servant will return to earth in power and might and finally establish the fullness of of his kingdom on the earth. And so what we see, the next glimpse, is of an astounding coronation. Kings and nations will one day be rendered stunned and speechless when God's suffering servant is crowned king as the reigning king at his second coming. This Verse 15, it says, So will he sprinkle or startle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. I mentioned earlier that the word translated sprinkle in many of your versions can also be translated startle or stun, 
and I join those scholars who believe that's the better translation that fits the context here, follow the thought, just as people will be astonished and appalled at the humiliation of the Lord's servant, so one day people will be startled and stunned when that same man is crowned king of the world, in full view of everybody. So mark it down, Messiah's second visit to our planet will be completely different than his first visit to our planet. He will not come as an inconspicuous, lowly, ordinary peasant boy, but as a breathtakingly glorious monarch, the ruler of the world. It says that powerful people, kings, it says, men who wield great power over the masses will be rendered utterly speechless when they see this. Nothing to say. I got nothing to say. In a single moment, world rulers and millions of other people who never bothered to study the Bible, never bothered to go to church and learn about the Word of God and God's plan, who dismissed biblical prophecy as a bunch of nonsense, in an instant, they will all get a crash course on eschatology. When they see Jesus returning to earth in power and great glory. This is when the stunning scene recorded in Psalm chapter 2 will come to pass. Listen, it reads like this. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, the Messiah. Let us break off their chains, they say. Throw off their fetters. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven will laugh. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'm telling you, the unbelieving peoples of the earth will be terrified on that day by the arrival of the king. And the Jewish people especially, as their long-held contempt for Jesus of Nazareth gives way to utter shock and dismay when they realize in that moment, oh no, we were wrong about him. We were wrong about him. You know, the fact is that the book of Isaiah is a prophetic message to Jews, right? To the nation of Israel, to God's chosen people who, as you've read the Old Testament, so often they forsook the God of their covenant, turned away to worship other gods, and you know that God's chosen people were promised a king from way back. Abraham and David, a king is coming, a king is coming, but the king who was sent to them from heaven was not much to their liking. But one day, that one will return, and those who are alive on that day will mourn their nation's foolishness at rejecting the Messiah on his first visit to our planet. You can read in the book of Zechariah, the prophet, he predicts that many Jews on that day, a day yet to come when Jesus is crowned king, many Jews will turn to Christ. Their eyes will be open, they'll put their faith in Jesus, and they will be saved. Praise God for that. But so many generations of Jews have come and gone and come and gone and totally missed believing in the true servant of the Lord. As we move from chapter 52 into chapter 53, Isaiah reveals even more clearly the reasons why 
the Jewish nation by and large has not received Jesus as their Messiah, instead treating him with contempt, and how one day they're going to look back on that with great regret. you have any regrets in your life? Some of us have some regrets, right? Man, I wish I could get a do-over of this. I would, I, would, I would make that decision differently if I was given the opportunity. wish I could live this hour over, this day over, this week, this month, this year. Some of you, the whole decade, like the 70s, you know. I wish we could just do the 70s all over again or the 80s. But imagine the regret that people will feel on that day when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, is crowned king of the world, and you realize that you and your people had dismissed him and written him off as a nobody. Think there will be some regret? They had some reasons. There are some reasons they wrote him off. And that's what the theme goes to in chapter 53. It shifts from the startling servant of God to the scorned, the despised servant of God. Verse 1, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him. It's talking about the servant of the Lord Jesus growing up in the presence of God. Like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You, you notice in verse 2 that, that Isaiah shifts to the past tense. He was despised. It's as if all of this had already occurred. Again, this is told from the future perspective of the Jewish nation looking back on their people's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They're shocked now to see Jesus sitting on the throne of the world and they regret their millennia-long rejection of him. And so Isaiah asks mournfully, who believed our message? In other words, who among our people really got that Jesus of Nazareth was God's chosen Messiah, King, and suffering Savior? Why, oh why, did we not believe? And here God reveals to Isaiah reasons why his servant Jesus was so despised, why Israel rejected him. Five reasons are given. And basically it boils down to the fact that to them Jesus just did not fit their profile of a king. I want you to see these five reasons. First, Jesus was scorned because of his contemptible origins. That's one of the reasons why they didn't bow down and worship him, because of his humble beginnings. You see, Jesus just didn't stand out. He seemed pretty ordinary to them. That's what's, what's meant by he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. Now you know that in that, that was an agricultural society, right? So a lot of the illustrations and metaphors come from the world of agriculture, like these two right here. The word for tender shoot is the word for a sucker branch on a tree. Now we know what those are, right? So last fall I was out, we got a tree in our front yard and it had just hundreds of little sucker branches. So I got my, um, what do you call those things? Whatever. Trimmer, thank you. Got that out, pruner, 
cut out, cut off all those little sucker branches. You've done that. We know what those are. They're just kind of a nuisance, right? They just need to be cut off and disposed of. That's what they thought of Jesus. He's just a little sucker branch. Useless, irrelevant, insignificant, small, irrelevant. A root out of a dry ground is similar, just unwanted, insignificant, hardly worth a thought. Nobody waters it. Nobody cares for it. Nobody expects anything to come of it. No value, insignificant. That's how they viewed Jesus. The idea is this. The Jewish nation in the future is going to look back on their history and how they viewed Jesus, and they're going to say, we didn't believe in him because of his humble beginnings. There wasn't anything special about him. He didn't stand out from the crowd, and it's true, on the surface, there wasn't much about his parents, about his family, about his social status, about his hometown, that would lead anyone to anticipate, you know, visions of grandeur for this young man. You know, he was born into a peasant family, right? Not much in the way of social status. He and his dad were what? Carpenters. I mean, they worked in a wood shop, making things. Not aristocrats, not royalty. He had no formal education or training in their minds. The town he grew up in was not highly regarded. Remember what was said about it? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> That's where Jesus grew up. Truly humble beginnings, very unimpressive. And as a result, they scorned him. They despised him. Not only that, they scorned him because of his unattractive appearance. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but notice what Isaiah's prophecy says. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Most scholars take this to mean that Jesus of Nazareth just didn't have that look. And the Jewish people, like the people in our culture, are hung up on that look. Appearance, attractiveness. Jesus just looked kind of ordinary. He did not look very regal. He did not walk with that stately bearing that we like in our leaders. His image was not airbrushed. There wasn't anything in the way he groomed himself or looked at the cameras that attracted people to him that drew people to him. And the people thought, well, shouldn't our king be someone that we might see on a magazine cover? I mean, he wasn't like Saul, Israel's very first king. You remember reading about him? Saul was towering over all the other people. He was tall, dark, and handsome, right? Had those movie star good looks, photogenic. And because of that, they made him their king. That's the kind of king they wanted, and Jesus didn't fit the mold. Another, kind, another reason for their unbelief, third, is he was scorned because of his unimpressive following. I should say on the previous point, I, I don't think it was that Jesus was ugly or unsightly. It's just that he didn't stand out. He looked pretty typical. And his following was unimpressive. It says he was despised and rejected by men. And you know, if you've read your Bibles, that for the most part, Jesus of Nazareth was disdained. He was treated with contempt, and a good part of that was because of the company he kept. I mean, he really didn't do himself any favors by who he chose to hang out with, right? His disciples, 
His little band of followers was a ragtag bunch of oddballs and, you know, fishermen and outcasts, even an ex-terrorist, Simon the Zealot. I, I imagine people watch this little band, you know, walking around the countryside and saying, that's our king and that's going to be his cabinet? Seriously? He didn't fit. There weren't many people of means or status or influence who followed Christ. And he made matters worse by also consorting with the likes of tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards, and gluttons. They called him, it was a term of derision or contempt, a friend of sinners. Look at Jesus, that friend of sinners. But that was not a title he ran away from, was it? He said, I came to save sinners. I came to heal those who are sick of soul. That's why I spend time with these folks. And now here's something very interesting. The term here, rejected by men. You see that? That word men in the original doesn't mean males, and it doesn't mean like people, like the general populace. It is a unique term that refers to the prominent people, rejected by the men, the lords, the kings, the rulers. And you know, when you think about it, the, the masses of people could say, hey, the reason that we didn't believe in Jesus is because our leaders didn't believe in Jesus and we were just following our leaders. They didn't think much of him. And so we were just following their lead on this. And certainly the power brokers in Jesus' time were not at all impressed with him. They were always mumbling to each other, you know, who is this man? Why do the people follow him? He didn't go to our schools. He wasn't trained by our rabbis. He's a nobody. Why do people follow him? In John 7, 48, they basically say, no one of any stature pays him any mind, only the rabble of society. His followers just weren't very impressive. Fourth, he was scorned because of, let's call it his uninviting disposition or demeanor. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. At least from their perspective, Jesus of Nazareth did not exude the, the excitement, the gregariousness, the effervescence, the bubbliness of the leader that they wanted to follow. Does that make sense? And it is true that the scriptures speak more of his tears than speaks of him laughing. I think Jesus was a man who was burdened down by things, don't you? Yes, he had joy, I get, I get that. But wasn't he incensed by the things that he saw in the temple courts when they were turning his father's house into a den of thieves and he's overturning the tables? He was weighted down by the sin of the people. He was weighted down by the fact that his father wasn't receiving the glory that was due his name. The pain in people's hearts, the hopelessness that he saw, certainly the fact that he knew he was on a track to a cross to bear the sins of the world. Yeah, he was a man of sorrows. He wept over Jerusalem, this constant forsaking and turning away from God that he observed. To the people and the rulers, he just didn't have that personal magnetism and enthusiasm that they longed for in a ruler. And so when Jesus put himself forward as the Son of God and as their promised Messiah, they basically turned away in disgust. It's like, you're not really what we're looking for, bud. <laughs> and then fifth, 
They scorned him because of how it all ended. His humiliating end. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You know, near the end, Jesus was abandoned by almost everyone, wasn't he? You ever felt abandoned? You ever? I mean, people who swore their allegiance to you, I'll be with you. (laughs) You can count on me. One day you look up, it's like, where'd you go? I thought we were, you know, Jesus has been there. In the end, nearly everybody abandoned him. There's a saying, strike the shepherd and the sheep will will scatter, and that's what happened, right? Think about that night he was betrayed in the garden. Even his closest friends deserted him. People who had said, I I will die for you, Jesus. He's looking around, it's like, where where are you? (laughs) Through the night, that night, he got bounced around to a series of monkey trials and kangaroo courts. Was there anybody to advocate for him? Where were his supporters? The morning, as the morning dawned, he was convicted as a criminal. And the hostile crowd was crying out. Just days before, that same group had been crying out what? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, putting palm branches down before him as he rode in Jerusalem. Those same people, days later, just days later, are saying, we want his blood. Crucify him, crucify him. We want nothing to do with him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. We don't care. Give us Barabbas. Take Jesus away. Crucify him. Where were his supporters? Where were his friends? Where were those who claimed to be devoted to him? Sentenced by Pilate, he was scourged with that whip, beaten to a pulp, stapled to wooden beams, battered beyond belief, hanging there in public view, nearly naked. Totally humiliated as an example to everyone who was watching of what happens to someone who dares to challenge the authority and tradition of religious of Jewish religion and Roman might and power. Like one from whom men hide their faces, it says. At least one Jewish historian wrote of the crucifixion scene that people who were there were so repulsed by the grisly gruesomeness of what they saw that they turned away vomiting. It was that horrific. And then that final summary statement in verse 3 says it all, doesn't it? We esteemed him not. We don't regard him highly. Looking through one lens, you could find it hard to blame. Succeeding generations of Jews and others who would look back on that scene in their minds say, poor fella, how pathetic. Such grandiose dreams, kingdom visions, only to meet such a tragic end. What a wasted life. Millions of people have thought that about Jesus. The reason so many did not believe in him is because to them it was all just so highly unlikely. Jesus just didn't work for them as a king. His origins were too ordinary. He didn't have those movie star good looks. His credentials were weak. The right people weren't drawn to him. He wasn't bubbly enough. And the way it all ended, yikes, pretty pathetic. He 
His beginning and middle and end were all quite unimpressive. And basically the Jewish nation said, we're just going to keep looking for our guy. Because <laughs> you're not it. Who has believed our message? It was just all so unbelievable. Just too bizarre to accept. But one day, when Jesus returns, not as a humble servant, but as a breathtakingly glorious monarch, non-believers will be filled with regret for totally misreading Jesus, totally misperceiving him. Kings and presidents are going to stand in stunned silence looking at their television screens on CNN as they watch Jesus of Nazareth crown king of the world, and they're going to stand there with their jaws on the ground going, I got nothing. I got nothing to say about that. Stunned silence as Jesus takes his rightful place on the throne. Well, that's Isaiah's, the opening two stanzas of Isaiah's prophecy, the first foray here into the servant song. So I thought about this. I thought, well, okay, that's the Jews, and but I wonder how many people in our day are missing the true Messiah. You ever think about that? How many people do you know who misread Jesus, who misperceive Jesus, and they write him off as a nobody? You know, not, he's not much. Or maybe like all the world, all the world religion, religions like Jesus. Did you know that? They all claim Jesus. They all like Jesus. But they misperceive who he is and what he claimed. How many people look right past Jesus, dismiss him, or maybe despise him? I want nothing to do with that man. Hostile. Many people, I fear. Many, many people. And then, I should ask this, how many of you misperceive Jesus? How do you perceive that man? And how do you... How do you Perceive his cross. I mean, what sense do you make of that event? I look around, I, I think, I have a lot of thoughts. I love the people in this room, but I think, please don't make the eternally fatal mistake that the Jewish people made. Please don't look at the cross of Jesus Christ and count it a little thing. No big deal. You will regret that one day. I guarantee it. What does that cross mean to you? When you look at the cross, what do you think? Does it move you? And do you have you ever come to a point in your life where you've had saving faith in that man who hung? on that cross? You say, well, I grew up in church. I, I, uh, I know about Jesus. I mean, everybody knows about Jesus, right? He did the thing with the loaves and the fish and did that. He walked on water. He was nice to a lot of people. I know about Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is when you bow your knee and offer your life to that man 
and you say, I am no longer mine. You died for me. I give you my life, my total allegiance, my total devotion is yours, Jesus Christ, because you're the Son of God. You're the servant of the Lord. You're the master. You're the king. You're the suffering servant. My life is not mine any longer. It's yours. That is saving faith. Not mental assent to some facts about Jesus that you've heard. Until you come to saving faith, you're not saved. (laughs) You'll be part of that crowd on that day when he's crowned king going, oh no, (laughs) what was I thinking? Why didn't I take it seriously? What do you think of the cross? I'll tell you what I think of it. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. I love that old cross. I said, I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In that old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I want you to understand something this morning. There's a lot of love there. There's a lot of love there. Have you received that love? There's a lot of love there, isn't there? A God who made everything coming down and dying for people, sinful people, taking their sin upon himself and giving his righteousness. There's a lot of love there. Yes, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and grief. But you know what? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. There's a lot of love there, friends. There's a lot of love there. God's demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, how I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would come to the point in your heart where you know that you know that you know that you know at the deepest core of your being that you are a saved person. That you love Jesus Christ. You're devoted to him. You've Put your faith in him. You're not trying to rest in all the good things you've tried to do in your life. You're trusting solely in what happened on Golgotha's hill 2,000 years ago as your only plea to enter heaven and be accepted by God. Does that happen for you? You know, in a moment, we're going to participate in a memorial that Jesus himself gave us before he died with his disciples that night in the upper room. Took a piece of bread said this is my body it's broken for you partake in remembrance of me this cup 
is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. But that's for believers, right? That's for God's people. We're going to do that in a moment. The worship team's going to come back up. We're going to sing some worship songs. We're going to leave some time for you to come and partake of the Lord's table. But, but if you're not sure yet that you're one of his people, if you've not, like when I bowed my knee and surrendered to Christ, gave you that picture, you said, I don't know that I've ever really done that. Well, before you partake of this, do that. This doesn't make sense without that. In fact, it's kind of offensive to him to participate and not be an all-in, Jesus-loving believer in Christ. Some prayer partners will be available. They're glad, they'll be glad to pray with you about anything, anything. But this, come and ask them. Say, I, I need some guidance in how to give my life to that man, Jesus Christ, because he gave his life for me. They'd love to guide you into that. As believers here this morning, come and linger at the table. Enjoy all the blessings that were purchased for you by what our Lord did for us on the cross. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we gaze at this cross and so many conflicting thoughts and emotions enter our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would narrow them all down to love. That we would realize, our eyes would be open to the extent that you have loved us and that we would respond to that love with a deep, abiding, faith-filled love for Christ. For those in the room who have not yet come to a point of repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus, may today be the day for them. And then they could come and partake of your table and rejoice. And when that day comes, when you're crowned king, instead of being fearful and regretful, they'll be filled with joy because you have become for them what they always knew you were. Meet us in a special way these next few moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.